Welcome to episode 269 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. I'm Valerie Koo, CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses, useful resources, and an awesome, supportive community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series. How are you, Al? I'm okay, Val. That's good. That's mm. good. good start. I think I we're think, off to a blazing start. Well, yeah. Well, here's even more blazing for you. I think I'm fair to middling today. <gasps> no, <gasps> you can't be fair to middling. I know. You're I, the perk. I'm You're the perk. shocked myself. I know. I think. Does I've, that mean I have to step up? Yes. Do I now need to be perky? Mm. Okay. Yes. Ready? Well, let's do yes. it again then. Give me the the question. All right. How are you, Al? Val, I am amazingly good. (laughs) What do you think? You see, fake it till you make it. I think it can work. No, well, you see, I think that I finally hit a wall. Um, As you know, I've been quite busy of late and, well, for quite a bit of a marathon really, and I just thought it was going to continue, but I hit the wall this morning or last night or whenever. So I'm a bit shocked myself because I don't recognise this feeling. It's been ages since I – I mean, I felt tired, of course, but that's different to hitting a wall. Um, and I don't remember this feeling and it's – it's. I don't know what to do with it or myself, to be honest. Do you know what to, you should do with it? What? Go and have a lie down, woman. <laughs> like, seriously? You have been insanely busy. You have pulled off an amazing <laughs> festival. You are still running a writer's centre. You are doing all of these other things. Have a lie down. Okay, I and will. I'm sure that our listeners it. are also are currently, and I can sound perky doing it if you want me to. Have a lie mm-hmm. down, Val. You'll feel so much better. <laughs> Lying down is very good for you. Feeling See? perky doesn't mean talking high, Al. Oh, I think it's just because <laughs> you talk higher than me, so I immediately put those two things together. <laughs> I'm oh trying, to, my God. trying to be perky. I thought perky was kind of high. It's right. not always high. Now, what's been happening with you? Well, I haven't been perky, that's for sure. Um, Well, I – okay, here's what I've been doing. I've been working very hard. As you know, I'm always working Mm. very hard and writing things. And I am today printing off my current manuscript, which is uh, pretty much like a – where are we up to? I would call it maybe like a second draft. I'm printing it off and I'm sending it to um, my beta readers. And I'm extremely lucky because I've got the best – is it beta or beta? I know you want to tell me, so do. Well, I would say beta. That's because you like Latin. Okay. So (laughs) beta readers. Um, I've got an excellent team and I'm extremely lucky to have such a great team because I have Book Boy, who's very, very hard on me. And then I also have uh, Jazzy's Bookshelf, who is another uh, uh, tween blog. Oh, she's a teen now. She's 13, I think, um, uh, that I know, who um, reads an enormous amount and reviews books. And check out, actually, you know, if if you're looking for – reads for your kid, check out her blog at Jazzy's Bookshelf. Um, So they are going to assess for me in the sense of reading it. I'm going to give them a list of questions and they are going to respond to those questions once they've read the book. Um, So it will probably be pretty heartbreaking and I'm I'm really prepared for that. And, you know, they know that I expect no quarter, so it's all good um, because it's not going to get better. It's not going to be right for the readership unless the readership tells me, you know, 
what's good and what's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm preparing to send those off and then I'm going, well, one of them only has to go across the hallway. The other one I have to send off. But um, I'm going to be putting those out and then waiting nervously for their, for their feedback on, on the story. Now, what I love about this is the word count. Do tell us how many words this manuscript is, Al. It is 59,999 words precisely. <laughs> I know. Part of me is like, Al, just put an extra word in there. Like, really? But I, I feel if I did that, I would somehow mess up that perfect balance. So, I mean, you know, it'll end up being, by the time I get Something the feedback else, back yes. and do an edit and whatever, it'll either end up being 61 or, you know, 54. Mm. Um, but... I, um, at this current point in time, 59,999 words, <laughs> which is pretty funny. It's enough to make yeah. a person perky, really. Like, really. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's exciting. I can't wait to hear what your beta readers think about uh, the book. Well, you know what? Really you might ask me. You might ask me in two weeks how I am and I'll be like, I'm on the floor, I'm unable to move, mm-hmm. I'm so depressed and you'll know why. Do they supply it in their feedback in a written form or do they tell it to you? No, I give them a questionnaire to go with the book. Um, so I, I actually for for this purpose, generally speaking, you wouldn't bind a manuscript, for, but for this purpose I bind it and I put a question sheet in the back um, so that once I get to the end of it, while it's all still fresh, um, and I, I write the question and I leave a gap so that they can just, you know, and I, I'm not looking for essays. I'm just looking for impressions and notes mm. and you know, that kind of stuff. So, and of course, if they have anything further to add, they're welcome to either give me a serve or to, um, you know, email me or whatever. Um, Book Boy, of course, just likes to tell it to me because Mm -hmm. he's, that's much quicker than having to write anything down. Mm -hmm. But when I send it out to other kids, I always get them to write me some And that is a really good idea, having the questionnaire. So whether you're sending it to kids Oh, you should always have a questionnaire. Yeah, Yeah. have a questionnaire. You need to know know what you want to know. So I have Mm. very clear ideas about what I need to know about this manuscript. I I have very clear ideas about things that I'm wondering if they're working. Um, I've tried something different with the point of view. I need to know if they – uh, if it works for them or not. So Mm. very, very specific questions. Um, don't, don't send it out and just want them to tell you if they like it or not. That is not useful to you on any level. Mm, Of course, what you really want is for them to come back and say, this is amazing. I love it. And don't change a thing, but you don't really want that. That's the kind of feedback that your (laughs) mum might give you. Actually, no, my mum wouldn't. My mum would come back with the whole thing marked up, proofread and, you know, (laughs) seriously, Alison, what are you thinking? But that's, that's what you want. Like you don't. But you do, yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. All right, let's move on to our useful links in the world of publishing and writing this week. So you've got an interesting one for us about book covers. Oh, I do. And the reason that this is interesting, so I need to set some backstory for you here. The reason that this is interesting is that the Book of Secrets obviously came out recently in the US. And if you look at the two covers for the Book of Secrets, for both both Adaban Cypher novels. So the Adaban Cypher series came out in the US um, and is out out in Australia. And so in the US, they put different covers on the book, whereas with the Mapmaker Chronicles, they didn't. Like they pretty much have the same covers as the Australian um, market, but mm. with the US, with the Adaban Cipher, they went for very different covers, and we've talked about this before. Um, and so, um, I put a question in the. I was just interested as to whether or not this was a 
why you would do this. Like, is it a marketing thing? Is it a publishing thing? What, you know, what is it? Is it because different territories respond to different things? You know, blah, blah, blah. We did all that. Um, so I put a question in your kids next read because we have, which is the Facebook group that I manage with Megan Daly and Alison Rushby, um, which is all about finding a book for your kid, right? So mm. we've got 6,000 members in there now. And I thought, oh, I'm going to run a little poll to find out, you know, what the story is. So I asked people to tell me which cover of the Book of Secrets they preferred and yes. where they were from because I was trying to get an idea of whether or not the US members of the group, of which we have many, um, would respond more to the US cover or, you know, vice versa. Um, and also most people, of course, then also told me why they liked it or not. Yes, so the yes. Australian cover, and we'll put the covers in the show notes so you can see what I'm talking about, but the Australian cover has characters on the front, like it has um, Gabe, uh, from memory because I don't have it sitting in front of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has Gabe, Mary and Midge on the front, whereas the uh, US cover is very um, a lot more abstract. It's a, you know, um, a different colour. It's got uh, sort of lots going on in the background, but it's not necessarily, you know, there's the characters in the front of you. Um, and what I found interesting about it was that no matter where people were com- had come from, most more people preferred the Australian cover with the characters, which I found really interesting because both my boys preferred the US cover. So, you know, anyway, it was just an exercise and blah, 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 off we went. But about a minute and a half later, the Australian Book, Diners, Book Designers Association in their, uh, on their website ran a post which was called yeah. One Book, Two Covers. Mm. And um, for the post, the um, Australian Book Designers Association committee member and designer Hazel Lamb brought together local book covers, so Australian book covers, and then their international counterparts. And she's actually, um, you know, looked at insights into why the covers look the way they do. So the designer has given ideas of why they created the cover, you know, the way that it looked um, and what they were sort of looking for, the kinds of considerations that they kept um, in mind. And like with a book like Boy Swallows Universe, which of course Mm. is – Trent Dalton's book, yeah. uh, which has got which is out in many different territories. Um, you know, they show a lot of that the book from a lot of different territories, and you can mm. just see different designers and how they approach, you know, what they do, how they approach the cover, how they come up with the concept that they come up with. Um, and I just thought, in light of the conversation about those two covers from the Adaban Cipher, it was really worth having a look at. So I wanted to put that link in the show notes because I think the cover is so incredibly important for a book, and particularly if you are, you know, indie publishing your book, it's not an area that you can afford to really skimp on. Um, so I thought people might really appreciate the insight into how, you know, these incredibly good book designers go about coming up with the concepts that they come up with. Yeah, absolutely. We'll put the link in the show notes, of course, from the Australian Book Designers Association, and you can find the show notes at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. But also, if you are indie publishing and want some more insight into book covers, make sure you check out our course, Book Covers That Sell at the Australian Writers' Centre as well. So, yeah, great link. Thanks for that, Al. So we have another link for uh, from you about Facebook pages for authors. 
Oh, well, this is just um, this is one that pretty much came up because of uh, the So You Want to Be a Writer Facebook um, community. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some discussion in there about Facebook pages and what to put on them and what they should look like. And, um, and again, it was a bit serendipitous because, you know, that conversation occurred and then voila, on a, a website called socialmediajustforwriters.com, um, there's a post called 14 Facebook Pages for Authors to Review. And it's written by Francis Caballo or Caballo, and apologies if I pronounce that incorrectly, um, but uh, who is someone who writes in this space a lot. There's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of posts. And I thought um, that it was worth sharing with everybody because I think it's a it, it's one of those things Facebook can be very very difficult you know it's a tough it can be a tough space to be in because um, the organic reach for Facebook can sometimes make it very difficult to gain traction so the Facebook algorithm of course which is discussed at length um, means that your post can be shown to just a, a small percentage of your mm. actual following um, and so it can be difficult to actually you know get that get that sort of traction going so that you're so that your posts are seen more widely. Um, And so what Francis has done here is to pull out 14 Facebook pages that are done differently, that have something different to offer. And and this is the thing I always say to, um, to authors who are setting up a Facebook page, you need to have a look at what other people are doing. You need to, to follow a whole bunch of different authors. You need to really, and not just like follow them and have a look at it. I mean, actually assess what it is that they're doing. How often are they posting? What kind of content are they posting? How do they go about this this Facebook business? And of course, the ones that she's looking at, a lot of them have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of likes involved. Um, one mm. of them is Anne Lamott, who's got over half a million. Yeah. Isabella Lende has got a million. But it doesn't hurt to still see what those people are actually doing and how they're going about it. She also mm-hmm. does have a look at some smaller ones, um, you know, including, you know, one who has 2,200 likes. So, of course, these are pages that are built. Facebook is a place where you build. You do not mm-hmm. just like lob on in there and suddenly, you know, you're a superstar. It is a place that really takes time um, to to build. And I don't mean you necessarily have to be on Facebook a thousand hours a day. I just mean it's kind of like time in the game as much as yep. time, you know, on the field, so to speak. So um, I just thought it was a post that was worth uh, sharing for people to have a look at what different um, authors are doing because I wasn't actually – um, familiar with all of these authors, it's definitely worth having a look at what they what what they're doing. Um, but I guess I also wanted to ask you, Val, like, what are mm. your thoughts on on you know how how to build that sort of following that you know sure. for a Facebook page? Yeah, well, um, as we've mentioned before, the Facebook algorithms is now such that it's very difficult to get engagement when you have a page as opposed to a profile. So just to be clear to anyone who's new to Facebook, everyone has a Facebook profile if you're on Facebook, and that's a personal profile, but you can choose to have a page, which is what businesses or artists or authors or, you know, the local pizza shop have, they have a page. They don't have a profile because a profile is of a person. Now, a page can be of a person as well, but uh, usually that is conducted in some kind of public way because it's a page and anyone can see it and view it and stuff like that. So um, I think that even though it 
has merits to have a page, that it's really only useful in the longer term at this stage, and again, this might change once once Facebook changes its rules, is if you use Facebook advertising. Personally, mm. I do, I did have an author page, but I abandoned it. And in fact, if you go there, there will be a big message saying, I've moved on Facebook, please you know, connect with me on my personal profile because I just found that it wasn't getting that much engagement for me. It obviously does work for some authors, but more importantly, I didn't want to feed two beasts. I didn't want to have two things to do on Facebook. I just wanted one entity or one person, one, you know, thing on Facebook um, and just use that one thing. I didn't want to have to go, oh, am I posting this on my page, on my profile or my page or, oh, I need to answer through my profile, not my page. You know what I mean? I just didn't want to have that extra level of thinking. And so I only use my personal profile. I allow anyone to connect with me or follow me or friend me or whatever. Um, And I do that on the basis that I am perfectly happy that anything I post is 100% public. I don't post, you know, really personal information. If I post anything personal, it's in, it's within private groups. It's never Mm. on my personal, um, you know, personal profile. So that's really the main reason for that is that I just didn't want to feed two beasts, but I do recognize that some people find it useful to have a, a page as well as a profile but well, I yeah. have a page. Yeah, and exactly, and it works well a, for you. It does work, It and it works really well for me. And I guess that's the thing I would say too. You often see a lot of doom and gloom about Facebook's organic reach, um, whereas for the most part my organic reach on Facebook is actually really good. Mm. Um, and the reason I think it's really good um, is because I talk to people. I engage with people. If people comment, I always respond. Um, I, I try to post a range of different things. I share other people's work as well as my own. I'm not just banging on about myself. I'm not just sharing my own links all the time. Um, and I think that it allows me also to see the kinds of posts that people respond to the most. Mm. I am very fortunate in that I have my secret weapon of Procrastipop um, <laughs> who – uh, you know, who just gets, I mean, he's clearly the superpower behind my entire uh, branding exercise because he gets more likes than anything I've ever done. Um, yep. But let's not talk, let's not talk about how depressing that can be. Yeah. Um, so I, I think the, the, the key with Facebook um, and a Facebook page is to, um, is to, you can't just set and forget it. I know a lot yeah, of people no, will just can't. be like, you can just schedule and you can do whatever, or you just cross purpose no. with Instagram and that's, you know, you can't just do that. You can do a bit of that. And I think a little bit of that is actually a useful, um, very useful thing. Like you're not always around to, to, to do whatever, but the key is that you must always go back and have a look at those posts. If people take the time out of their day to like or comment, specifically comment on your, on what you've done or what you've put up, then you really have to, you know, it's about a community and it's about the fact that you're part of the community. You're not you know, it's not just the community on over here and you over, you know, over here somewhere else. Um, and I'm waving my hands around here, fully appreciating that you can't see my hands. So you just have to imagine that I've got my left hand on one side and my right hand on the other. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really important to remember that you're kind of all in this together. And if you take the community approach to your Facebook page, I think you have a lot more success with actually talking to the people. I mean, my following is not massive. I have like 3000 plus followers. Um, but it's very engaged like those and that, that to me is more important than having a hundred thousand likes 
and for people who are actually interested in what I'm doing and what I'm saying. So mm. I think if you can try to remember that, you know, this is you being part of something, not you just throwing kind of content at a whole group of people, um, I think that that's probably the key to it. And I keep it separate because I have no issue. Like my Facebook profile is just me sharing jokes with people I've known for 30 years, um, you know, so it's kind of like it's very simple for me to keep those two things separate. My page is very much my public face. And my mm. profile is, you know, as I said, me, you know, anything on my profile is is pretty much I know that that that's it's just for friends. Yeah, simple. simple. Yeah, yeah. So there's two, uh, yeah, different approaches, and you need to work out the one that works well yeah. for that for you and your goals as an author. Yeah. All right, great. Let's move on to our competition this week. This is very exciting. We have three copies of Gone by Midnight, which is the latest thriller by New York Times number one best-selling author and awesome Australian Writers' Centre presenter, Candace Fox. Ex-cop Ted Concafi is slowly rebuilding his life in Crimson Lake and getting to know his three-year-old daughter Lillian. But when he and his PI partner Amanda take on the case of a boy who seems to have literally disappeared into thin air, his job once again threatens everything. Crimson Lake is where bad people come to disappear and where eight-year-old boys vanish into thin air. All right. So you could win one of three copies, and Candace's books are always very compelling and, you know, they're page turners. Uh, entries close on the 18th of February. So go to writercenter.com.au slash win in order to figure out how to enter. It's very, very easy. So that's writercenter.com.au slash win. Now, Al, this has perked me up. Are you you sound really perky all of a sudden. <laughs> Listen to that. Oh, my lordy wordy. <laughs> Are you ready for the word of the week? Oh, so ready, Val. See, okay. I'm perking too. Okay. So it is galimaufry. Mm, what? Galimaufry. Okay. G-A-L-L-I, galley, and then M-A-U-F-R-Y. Hmm. Maybe I'm not pronouncing it right, but I did, you know, look up YouTube. I honestly feel like YouTube. if you're going to have a word of the week, you have to be able to say it. <laughs> I know, but I did I did look up lots of YouTube pronunciations. Okay. Um, pronunciations. Pronunciations. About pronunciations. Pronunciations. And free. All right. Do you, have you heard of it? Have you used it? I have not heard of it nor used it. Yeah, it's a real word. It's in the Macquarie Dictionary. Okay. And it means a confused jumble or hodgepodge. It comes from the French, <laughs> this meaning like our, stew. Like our podcast? Or, yeah. <laughs> no. Let's um, change the name from so you know, to be a writer to galimifry. So you might say the crazy weather left a galimifry of destruction in its wake. Or you might say the children's rumpus room was left in a state of galimifry. Or you might say, see, there are many uses of this. The way he spoke was a galimifry of lots of words from different languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but would you ever say yeah. that? Well, why not? Okay. <laughs> if now anybody you out will. there can use this in a proper sentence in some kind of actual bit of content or a tweet or anything yeah, you like, yeah, yeah. please tag us. Go on. Yeah, you might yeah, win go a prize. On. Challenge. <laughs> Challenge. All right. Great. So. Do you want to know who our writer in residence is this week? I do. I really want to know that. Cool. So J.P. Pamari is an award-winning writer and he has had 
Um, his work published in various journals. He is originally from New Zealand, but now resides in Melbourne with his wife. And he has written his debut novel, Call Me Evie. And it is a psychological thriller that is kind of a bit God girl, a bit girl in the train, uh, but set in New Zealand and, and, and a bit in Melbourne. So uh, let's have a listen to JP. Thanks so much for joining us today, JP. No worries. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on your book, Call Me Evie. For those readers who haven't read the book yet, can you tell them what it's about? Yeah, sure. So Call Me Evie is a uh, psychological suspense novel. Um, It's about a young woman who sort of emerges from a stupor in in a country she's never been with a man she's not entirely sure if she can trust. Um... And uh, she begins to suspect that some of the things she remembers may not be exactly how it happened um, and, and sort of loses trust in the man she's with. Um, and if I speak too much more about it, Valerie, I might begin to sort of wade into spoiler territory. <laughs> sure. So it is gripping from the first page and it just compels you forward to, to turn the page into read on. But even just based on that little bit of information, that teaser that you've given us, I always, I'm always fascinated by people who write crime and who write thrillers and and psychological thrillers because I kind of I just go where do they think of this? <laughs> so how did this idea, this premise, form? And and how yeah, did, were you thinking about it for a long time or did it like struck you like an epiphany? Um, I mean, it's I guess a combination of both things. I sort of I had this idea for a for a little while to write about a place I know really well um, called Makatu in um, in New Zealand, which is where I'm from. So I um, I always wanted to set a novel or a story there at the least. And um, I, you know, I, I had this character, Kate, who is a very sort of Melbourne character. She's very neurotic and introverted, but outwardly super cool and, and kind of relaxed. Um, Oh, yes, very and, Melbourne. <laughs> very Melbourne, yes. And I had so I had these two things. Um, uh, I had my character and, and my setting. Um, and I sort of thought, um, how, if, if Evie's in Makatu, how does she get there? Um, and the second question I asked was, who, and who, who is she with? So just with those two sort of bits of information, I, I guess I began to formulate um, something of a plot and, um, and from there, I guess, just in working through the years and developing the story, I, I, it kind of emerged and I realized that it was a psychological suspense novel. So, um, yeah, that's basically how it, how it came about. So you started off with this character and a setting, so a, a place, mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the plot emerged out of that. Did you um, plot... M- a lot of it out before you started writing or did you kind of start writing and let the plot unfold as you were discovering it yourself? Yeah, I um, I mean, I'm definitely more of a sort of, I guess what you call a, a pantser um, rather than a plotter. I, I tend not to plot too intricately because I find um, – I find I write best, and I think this is true of most most writers, when I begin to sort of go off and sort of explore and just sort of let the characters act naturally and, and do their own thing. And, and qu- you know, quite often I'll, 
I'll be writing and I'll have to go back and rewrite because I've just been sort of meandering and it's not mm. contributing or, or pushing the story forward. Um, so it can be quite excruciating if you do a lot of writing like this and the story's not really moving forward and it's just a case of editing all back. Um, but when I had, because I'm working on book two at the moment, so I can sort of, I, I've got a bit more insight into my my approach. Um, but when I, when I have this sort of, the bones of the story. So after I've done all that kind of pantsing and just writing um, and exploring to find the, the story, then I go back and I say, what's the story about? Um, what's really important to the plot? What can I tease out more and what can I cut away? And that's when I sort of, I, I look at the framework or the architecture of the story um, and I can I can begin to really plot and begin to find these little intricate sort of twists and things I can weave into the narrative as well. Um, so yeah, I'm a bit of both, but I, I, I definitely do not um, plot my story out as much as, as some writers do, that's for sure. So with this, there is a, there's kind of like a couple of timelines. There's a before and then there's after. So before, you know, a certain thing and after a certain thing. So uh, did you consciously, um, how did you approach that? Did you kind of write one and then write the other and then interweave them together? Or did you just write bits and then put, of whatever and then put them together how on a practical level how did you determine how did you um write these two timelines and determine which order they were meant to happen in i mean yeah the reader was meant to read them in yeah no it's a, it's a good question because um i always wondered about this and i still wonder about other writers processes particularly when there's dual narratives or, or sort of dual timelines because yeah. um I, I, I think it's so much easier to write one and then write the other and then kind of splice them. That's how I always imagined it would happen. But when I actually wrote it and in every draft, I always wrote, um, I would always do it basically in the order it's in. So I'd do one or two before chapters, then one or two after chapters. Um, so like part of my brain's, you know, the, the, logically I think, oh, it'd be so much easier just to fully immerse myself in one narrative get that complete and then do the after sections. Um, but it bored me when I tried to sort of, well, when I thought to do that, I thought, I'm, I, you know, part of, part of reading it, I think is the, the excitement of finding out the effects at the same time as the causes. Um, and that was so fun to write. And I thought, you know, if it's, if I want it to be fun to read it, I have to be loving the, the writing process, even though it was torturous at times. Um, I think it's, yeah, I, th I think the structure was something that particularly excited me from very early drafts. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't, it's another thing where, you know, I know writers do it certain ways. I know they, I think it was a bit more of a sort of natural process for me. I, I wasn't thinking too much about how I'd go about it. I just wanted to write the most compelling, sort of exciting story. And, um, and so when I was writing, yeah, I just wrote the parts that excited me the most. Um, and then, yeah, and then just sort of tried to make it all sort of come together and work in the editing process. Mm. When you're reading a psychological thriller like this, um, as a reader, you experience a certain amount of tension and a certain amount of stress for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't write psychological thrillers. I'm curious to know, as a writer of one, do you also experience that kind of stress and tension and does that 
kind of low-level stress and tension for such a long period take its toll in any way or oh, do you not? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's another really good question because you – I mean, I write uh, – this novel as opposed to what I'm working on now, I wrote a lot at night because I was still working full-time. So I, um, I, I wrote like alone at night basically in the dark because it was in the same room that my wife was sleeping in. I tried to be as quiet as possible, of course, but um, mm-hmm. you're sort of, you are quite alone and, and, and lonely and you, you, you want to s- kind of scare yourself. So you have this really low level anxiety for your characters. And um, I often get asked the question, what surprised me? You know, did, did any of my characters do anything that surprised me? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same thing. I, when you're, writing i'm like don't don't do that what are you doing please and you kind of you know you sort of want to protect your characters and you don't you you also want them to have their own agency but i'm when i wrote it it was the exact same experience for people who um, would read it there was moments where i was like sort of crying almost or like you know just feeling this sort of deep depression for some of my um characters had some really horrible things happen to them um so absolutely it's this really I don't know when the by the time you finish writing it, it's a it's a, this sort of really you know deep relief that you've managed to get it all out there and you manage to be as sort of true to the characters and their motivations as possible without sort of protecting them or without shying away from some of the sort of um, darker elements of the story. So um, yeah, there was it was a pretty. Uh, strenuous and and pretty tough sort of writing process, I guess. Um, so book two, book two's you, been easier. I'd put it that way. Yes, but here's the thing: you uh, say that there's sort of a, a relief to, to when you when you're finished, but the thing is, you've gone back for book two. So, is there some part of you that's <laughs> a bit addicted to that tension and stress? <laughs> yeah, I think so. You know, I, I I was never big on scary movies and that sort of thing. It's really funny because I guess for some people it's uh, um, ultimately a, you know, a sort of parallel experience reading a thriller and watching a sort of thriller on. But I could never watch a thriller for some – I never really got into them as much as, um, as writing them. Um, so I can't, you know, I can't sort of – I'd love to sort of psychoanalyze myself and say, why <laughs> is it, you know, why can I create these, this sort of atmosphere, but I can't necessarily experience it in, in a film. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, the thing is, like, it's the story more than anything that attracts me to this to this sort of genre um, or, this, or even this form. You know, you've got so much room to explore the interior world of your characters and their motivations and and character and setting it doesn't matter what i write um i could write more literary fiction or romance or what you know whatever i end up writing um it'll always be an exploration of character and i'll always be obsessed with um my settings i think my settings um particularly in, in evie but also in, in book two really sort of drive the narrative um in the same way you know there's there's writers like jane harp is a really good example in australian fiction whose settings ultimately drive the narrative and, and and really come first and sort of leap off the page um probably more so than anything else so i think yeah i think it's i'm addicted to writing um but there's only certain things that interest me enough to actually fully explore and, and lots of that psychological stuff so well, your bio states, JP has always been drawn to the dark. Now, 
What kind of dark is this? How have you always been drawn to the dark? I mean, that's obvious, obviously, in what you've just said and in your writing, but in life, what what have you been drawn to that's dark? Well, I'm, I'm sort of endlessly fascinated by really normal people, people who are like you or I, um, people who aren't obviously damaged, um, doing or putting, being, finding themselves in situations where they have to do extraordinarily horrible things, either to survive or because it's, you know, they're, they're sort, sort of programmed to do that. Um, but on the outside appear completely normal. So, I mean, more so in the arts than me actually going into, say, prisons or whatever. So I'm more attracted to stories that deal with darkness and also um, sort of historical accounts of, so the Lizzie Borden um, so Sarah Schmidt, who's an Australian author, wrote See What I've Done, which is about Lizzie Borden. I adored that book because it's just, you know, a, seem, a seemingly normal person doing something sort of horrific. Um, and, and the capacity, as I said, normal people have for usually violent acts. These things have always sort of attracted me. So even I find myself a news story I'll be, I'll read over and over again. Um, and, and like I said, some film, but definitely absolutely books. Um, I also, I mean, I've never really visited people in prison or anything like that, but I have in the past just sort of gone and sat in courtrooms and and listened in on sort of crimes and part for inspiration, but partly just a morbid kind of curiosity of what these people, what sort of clicks in the brain I don't know I, I guess I'm sounding probably quite strange right now but <laughs> no well most people go to Westfield to hang out on <laughs> you know if they've got a spare afternoon you go to courtrooms okay so you mentioned that you wrote a lot of a lot of it at night because you were working in the day can you just give us a, some kind of idea of the timeline for production like like how you know when you first got the idea or first started you know really getting into it how long you wrote for at night you know when you then started talking to a publisher up until publication just a bit of a timeline so that listeners can get an idea of that yeah sure sure so I mean I guess I wrote this around 2015 I always forget but um when I started writing it, there's a scene in the book where uh, Kate, it's the, I think it's the first scene of the book, so it's not a spoiler, but she sort of shaves her head. Um, and so I shaved my head to, as a sort of act of research when I was writing that scene. So I always look back mm. at photos on like Facebook and it's kind of time stamps when I started. So I guess, I think it was around 2015. So about um, four years ago, I started writing it. Uh and then I think I wrote for about probably about two and a half years or so, maybe three years um, before pitching an agent. Um, and all this time I was also sort of writing short stories and articles and I guess just trying to get a bit of a publishing history behind me. So when I did approach agents or publishers, I would have that. Um, yeah. yeah. So so then after, I guess, uh, a few sort of short stories and things, I had my heart set on my sort of, I guess, dream agent. Um, mm. So someone someone I knew had represented other young um, or relatively young authors and done really well um, in Australia and abroad. So I contacted her and just pure luck and timing, she was, she'd just come back from maternity leave Um which was really, really exciting for me because I knew she was on maternity leave and like an idiot, I thought I'd still 
send a query letter through, um, hoping, you know, when she got back, she'd read it. And she literally had just gotten back. So um, she responded, uh, I guess, after a week or so. And um, and then it just sort of went back and forward. And then when uh, she was pretty happy with it, so I made one or two edits based on her sort of suggestions and things she wanted me to tease out a bit more or, or work on. So I went away and did that. And then when she thought it was ready, we um, we sent it off. Um, to How a long did it take of, you to do that? So the, just those edits? Mm. Uh, uh, probably a couple of, well, a few months. But the, mm. the thing is, agents are very busy people. So you send it. So she sends me the notes and I go away for a couple of months and work on it. Then I send it back and then she, then I hear from her in a couple of months with an agency agreement and then I sign that and then I hear that. So, um, it was, so that process from when I initially queried her to when we submitted it um, was probably, I'd say, at least sort of six months. Mm-hmm. Um, then we submitted it to a number of publishing um, houses in, in Australia number, and just editors and publishers that she knew or had worked with in the past and fortunately – um, you know, we received uh, some author- offers from it from a few publishing houses, and um, then we finally we set it on Hashet Australia. Um, so I met with Robert, and and I really liked his vision for the book and everything. So after that, I I mean that was October last uh, sorry October 2017. So. Yeah. Um, and it was published in December 2018 at the very end. So it was, um, yeah, even after I signed a publishing agreement, it was still over slightly over a year um, by the time it actually hit bookshelves, which I think is quite long. But um, there was a, there was a whole sort of bunch of reasons for that. But it was, I guess, I mean, that's about sort of four, roughly four years from when I first put the pen to page and okay. when it hit the shelves. Yeah, sure. And I think a year is actually pretty normal. It's not too long. Um, you mentioned how you shaved your head because your character um, shaved, had her head shaved. And um, uh, and, and uh, in that scene, I remember th- reading the detail and thinking, wow, you know, that's just, um, it's so realistic. What else did you do? So obviously you, it, it, would, it was useful for you to shave your head so you could feel what it was like, you could see what it was like, feel, you know, the slipping on, on the hair. What yeah. else did you do that um, that was like that <laughs> to yeah. keep you to, as research <laughs> for, your, for the novel? Yeah, it's, it's a, I mean, it was a, such a sort of funny process of research. I say research, but it was sort of, building character as much as anything and, and understanding my character as much as anything. So, I mean, I hate the idea of research. I'm so lazy with research. I always do it sort of retrospectively. Um, but that research was kind of fun because I'm like, I wonder what my head looks like and my scowl underneath all this hair. Um, so when I – I mean, that was that's probably the most obvious example. But I did things like I shaved my legs um, because, you know, I am writing um, a, a young woman and mm. um, I hadn't – you know, I, and since I was very young, I hadn't sort of had nice silky shaved legs. Um, so I, I wanted to sort of experience that. And there's certain things that come with that, you know, because it's one thing to shave your legs and the act of shaving your legs. And it, it, it's really sort of routine for most um, most young women. Yeah. Um, so, like, I couldn't dwell on it too much because it's totally normal. But then there's mm-hmm. things you notice when the hair grows back. So mm-hmm. one thing we had in common was 
um, Kate stops shaving her legs. Um, and I, so I, I obviously didn't continue shaving my legs. And then I sort of noticed things like how it itches and, and a few, when you put on pants, how yeah, just that feeling when the hair's growing back and there's just certain little things I, I could observe, um, that I never would have known about otherwise. Um, I also, you know, I, I researched the setting. Um, so I, I took my wife back to the setting market too. So she'd never been there before. Um, and just sort of not in a creepy way, but just sort of observed or, or noted her observations. Um, <laughs> in a creepy way. So okay. I wasn't just, I wasn't hiding out watching her walk around this town, our Kate would. Um, it wasn't like that. No, I was, I, I was with her. I, I had, I guess I had my notebook, like we went for lunch at the fish and chip shop and stuff. And I just, anything she observed or no, noted, I would sort of make a note about. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that was, that was quite interesting because I had only experienced this place as a, um, as a young man and I was really familiar with it. And so things that I thought were kind of cool or interesting, she was, she found sort of, um, at times almost distressing. Um, so there's a, prevalence of like a local sort of or New Zealand gang in the area so very early on we saw like a gang patch and like facial tattoos um some of the kids were kind of kind of just stared um at uh, at us both but for me it was sort of like a, a almost like a greeting I don't know I, I wasn't particularly um you know affected by it but um, my wife certainly was so um and even just the smell like you know and and just things that I wouldn't observe because I'm looking at through the lens of my own experience of being to this place so many times um, as a first time sort of visitor from someone from the sort of, you know, from Melbourne, like in the suburbs, I, I got to experience that um, via sort of her interpretation, her perspective. Mm. Um, so it was, so this, I mean, there was so much things that aren't, I wouldn't regard as research, but so much that was so important for me to make sure that character was really sort of authentic. So, mm. um, yeah, just things like that. What are you, uh, you said you're on book two. So um, can you tell us what that's about and how, how far into it you are? Yeah, I, I have, I, I guess I'm I'm working through edits from Hashit. So they're, uh, my publisher in Australia have, have picked it up um we haven't taken it to my publisher in the states or the uk just yet but um we are working through a pretty decent edit uh at the moment um so i think that'll be that should be out in 2020 if all things go go smoothly from here um it's the story of a uh it's it's the story of a woman who um is lives in warrandite um, oh. sort of state state park. So, um, okay. she, she lives in Victoria, uh, and she's, I, I haven't actually gone, gone around to sort of talking about this one yet. So I'm quite, I'm just trying to, trying to make sure I don't say any spoilers. Sure. So it's about, it's about a woman who lives in a sort of, um, I guess in the state park in Warrandyte and, um, another, a young lady who's been sort of kidnapped and taken into a cult, mm-hmm. um, and it's about this collision of worlds and and um, so Donna, who lives in this sort of park, uh, her 
she's worried that people are watching her and she's got this real sort of claustrophobic sense that um, something's about to happen. Um, and uh, Aisha, who's who's sort of been kidnapped by this cult, is, is just sort of trying to escape and trying to understand what's happening to her. Um, so there's two stories that sort it's that same sort of parallel narrative. And um, at about halfway, there is a ginormous twist um, and everything from there. It's more of a sort of thriller and lots of things, lots of crazy things sort of happen. Um, wow. Do you, yeah. Did you spend a lot of time in that in the, yeah. the state park? I, d- I did, yeah. So um, fortunately my brother actually lived out there, um, him and his, his partner and their kids, um, and they had a, a beautiful property very close to the river. Um, and, you know, I spent a lot of time just walking along the river and just sort of, um, I guess, writing about the, the place. And there's things you – I mean, the, the I think it's such a great setting for a thriller as well because it's close enough mm-hmm. to the city, but it's also you can experience sort of isolation out there. Um, yes. Cell phone reception is not always the best and, you know, you, you're quite far from the police station. So there's all, so there's all sorts of opportunities to, to ratchet up the tension. Um, but I also – um, the research for this book was quite interesting. I actually managed to, um, through a psychologist who helped me with Evie, uh, I got to interview a, a um, extremely sort of damaged woman who was a member of a, um, well, who, who grew up in a cult in Australia. So um, that was one, extremely insightful and, and very generous on the part of um, my friend who's a psychologist and, and the young woman, but also... Um, you know, I was just so inspired by this woman's strength and, and, and the ways she's learned to adjust to the world outside. So, so much of the story is about that as well. Um, just about, you know, you, the idea that you never really leave the cult and you just, you're always making concessions and, and shaping your, Mm -hmm. your, your life around, um, this world that you didn't grow up sort of knowing. So yeah, that was, that was the research for it, um, essentially. And it's going really well so far. Yes. So, are you still writing late at night while your wife is asleep, or, or <laughs> no. have you chucked in your day job? <laughs> uh, she's got some some respite uh, now. I do. I do tend to. I feel I do my best work at night time. I'm more creative, more of a night yeah. owl than a than an early bird. But I. I have found um, a bit more balance. I have left my my work at the moment. Um, just to see how we go, it's it's a sort of I know it's a really scary thing to kind of throw throw in your day job, and you know the chance I'll probably um, pick up work again at some stage. But at the moment, I'm writing a lot during the day. I've tried to sort of adjust my habits so I'm not, you know, up until two a.m. giving myself <laughs> you know, this sort of anxious feeling, and you're all knotted up and you don't sleep properly. I'm trying to trying to write more so throughout the day, and then sort of unwind a bit more at night. Yeah. So you are originally from New Zealand, but you split your time between Melbourne, as you've mentioned, and Clunes, which of course is um, sort of like a country town in Victoria known to be like a bookshop town or a a bit of a literary town, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Why do you split your time? So we, um, I mean, we live in South Yarra. So anyone who knows Melbourne knows it's sort of very central, very busy, um, and it's, I mean, you, you, I, I'm a country boy. I grew up on a, on a sort of horse farm. So, um, my, my ideal world would be sort of, I guess, 
a place where I have enough land that we can kind of move around and we can go for nice walks, but then I can have a great sort of latte and, and be live that metropolitan life as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's not many places in the world and not many people with the privilege of sort of having uh, enough land uh, close to inner city Melbourne to have both those things at once. So we thought what, you know, we could look at possibly moving out of town or we could possibly look at um, uh, potentially getting property um, where we could go away for weekends and we could sort of, I could set it up as a writer's retreat and have friends stay and stuff like that. So we've got a teeny little apartment in South Yarra still, um, which we love and, and we spend, you know, half our time here, but we get away probably more and more these days um, to clunes and we've sort of become a real locals up there. We, we know loads of the loads of the others um, and we, you know, we'll go up for sort of a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, then come back Monday. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, it's just so much more conducive to creativity as far as I'm concerned, mm. being away from all the distractions of the city. Um, you can, I can walk a couple hundred meters and I've got like, 30 restaurants and, you know, 10 bars and like uh, the MCGs, like, you know, stones throw away and all the sports in the city and everything's so close and everything's so busy. Um, but that those distractions definitely don't help when you're trying to find um, the unbroken time required to write a really long project like a novel. So um, I love clunes and I, I mean, if I had, if I had to choose one or the other, I probably, I mean, I'd be leaning more and more t- towards living up there full time. So yeah, right. Did it got a starring role recently in that um, television series that was on recently called Plume? I think was yeah. that. Were, were you an extra in that or anything? <laughs> I, I wasn't. It was. It's funny because we were up there when I was filming, and you never know how popular these things are because they've filmed a few things up there since we've we've had the place and. Um, the most exciting thing to hit uh, Clune since we've been there, um, actually there's been a couple of um, pretty cool things, but when they were shooting that, the very first scene of the show is a guy sort of sprinting down the street naked. Yes. Uh, and, and they had to shoot that like, I don't know, 10 times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and all the sort of all the um, – all the people from Clunes are sort of gathered at the local cafe on the corner, just watching this poor actor. And I think it was like August, so it was the middle of winter, just sprinting down the main road, being chased by, by a cop. Um, so that was pretty exciting. I wasn't an extra, although in that scene he does run up the alley, alleyway, um, which is right beside our place. And the, there's a pie shop, which actually was our place. So if you if you do watch Bloom, oh um, yes. Yeah, Karen's Pies. So they doled up our little shop front and made turned it into this cool little pie shop. Um, that's your – what do you mean that's your place? That's, so we've got a shop front. So it's like this kind of terrace house thing. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah, yeah. So they, they used that, which was really – which was really cool. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I have watched the show and I know exactly what you mean. So I've seen the inside of your place. <laughs> yeah, you have. Yeah, yeah. So. bizarre. All right. So um, finally, what are your top three writing tips for aspiring writers who, you know, hope to be in a position like you one day, publish, second book on the way? Um, I mean, I think the first thing is to um, is to just keep developing your craft. So there's, I mean, you never know how close or how far away you are, but just assume you need to put in 
a lot of work. Um, so things like obviously through the Australian Writers Centre, but uh, you know any any sort of um, tuition or or mentor, mentoring mentorships you can um, get is fantastic. But also just any resources that um, where you're going to get that really high quality feedback. You're going to get people reading your work um, and saying honestly what they like and perhaps the things you could make stronger. So I think that would be my first bit of advice would be just to engage the writing community and, and, and enroll yourself in any courses or anything that that's, you believe is going to help you grow and develop as a writer. Um, the second thing I would say is to, um, I mean, to, depending on who you run for, but familiarize yourself with what works out there and available. Um, read the books that you want to write. And if, I mean, not everyone likes to do this, but reread them. So that's something that I did. I reread a couple of novels um, the second reading, I wasn't, I wasn't even hoping to enjoy it, but I did. Um, I always do, but it was just for an eye for structure and character and just trying to unthread this big tangle of a story to find out how, why it works the way it does and to understand the mechanics of plot and that sort of thing. Um, and it's not as active as that. You can sort of passively read for the second time and you're going to notice things you didn't notice the first time as well. So, um, if you've got a pen or pencil handy while you're reading or rereading, I always make sure that um, I am making notes of what what works and why, and what perhaps didn't have such a strong sort of didn't elicit such a strong response from me as well. Um, and the third one, you really put me through my paces here, but I do have one more really really simple um, piece of advice that I've received quite a lot, um, and that is so when when you submit a work. Uh, anything um particularly if there is a deadline just keep writing and working and rereading it for as long as you possibly can um especially if you're submitting it to someone you don't know or someone who hasn't um who's who's not expecting it so if you're submitting for a competition for short stories or a manuscript uh, competition so like an unpublished manuscript competition Use as much of the time as, as possible. So I think what I used to do was impulsively I'd see a competition and I'd send it off and then I'd reread the story and I'd notice all these mistakes. Because mm. um, it's funny, your brain kind of changes as soon as you've sent it. You yeah. you can read it with a bit of objectivity in the same way other readers will. Um, but just I would implore everyone who's entering anything like this or submitting for magazines or anything just to – Wait, just to reread it and work on it. You you never know. You might be able to squeeze one more reread or line edit in before the deadline. So don't send it in until as late as possible to make sure you've given yourself every opportunity to read it as as many times as possible. Really good advice. And uh, well, congratulations on your book. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, JP. No worries. Thank you so much for having me, Valerie. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. 
Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murdercourse. There you go, J.P. Pamari. It's a, yeah, very cool book. And I thought it was really clever of him to strategically think, oh, you know, I'm going to, I want to show that I've got some pedigree, even if I've never published a book, at least I'll get published in Mianjin or anthologies or Kill Your Darlings or the literary journals and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a. I mean, it's a really good strategy, and it's a. Um, mm. It's it's one I think that a lot of people don't think of, but it's yes, definitely you know right. a way to build publishing credits because then of course you've got something to put on your writing CV, which yeah. you know at the end of the day is is just that one step further, you know, up the food chain than someone who doesn't have have those credits. So definitely worth you know if if you can if that's your bag, mm. definitely worth you know trying to to do that. Very, very clever. Very clever. All right. So uh, we're almost at the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week, Al? What am I doing? That's a very valid question, Valerie. Um, well, uh, so Bookboy Junior is at Year 7 camp, which is a little bit exciting, mm-hmm. um, which also means that the house is even quieter than usual. I mean, much quieter than usual, I should have said. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I'll just bask in the silence. I might just oh. do that for a little okay. while anyway. What about you? You should be basking in silence and I lying down. I should be down. basking in silence. Well, maybe the other thing, actually, I should mention this because, and this is not sponsored in any way, this is something that we did as a team yesterday in the office. Um, we had CPR training. Oh. And I just, I had no idea how much I didn't know. And I just think it's such a good idea for everyone to, uh, if you have the opportunity or create the opportunity to do CPR training, because you could end up saving a life. It's actually not scary or hard. It's just useful information. And um, this was inspired by a friend of mine who has uh, started having CPR barbecues. So he just invites a bunch of friends over for a barbecue and you can get CPR training from a qualified, you know, person in the <laughs> meantime. Yeah. And so That's because hilarious. I'm not good at barbecues or entertaining, I just thought, oh, well, we'll just do it in the office because I was inspired by his actions. And um, so hopefully what I won't be doing is performing CPR on anyone. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but if I should I need to, at least now I know how. Uh, it is a good idea. I have I have to say it's been ages since I did first aid training, so I probably should do something like that too. We've got yeah. we've got book, book boy fully fully trained with his bronze medallion for surf life saving. So, um, and the builder does it as part of his you know oh, workplace yes, of stuff. So mm. I, I'm sort of like I've I've got that false sense of security of well people around me know how to do this, so I'll be right. Mm. But um, you know you're right. I should probably do something useful. Maybe you can invite me to a CPR party. CPR? Yes, that's right. CPR. Oh, you could hold your own CPR barbecue. Mm, maybe. Yeah, cool. Fun times. All right. All right. So that's what, uh, yeah, that's what I have been doing but hope I will not be doing. All right. Now that comes to the end of this week's podcast. Where do we find you online, Al? You will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Valerie, where do we find you? You'll find me 
uh, at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And do connect with both of us within the listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It's free and we'd love to have you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.